Welcome back to The Truth Perspective, dear listeners. This is Harrison Cayley. Joining me today is Corey Schenk. Hello, everybody. And today we are going to be wading into the depths of the debate, the great debate between the neo-Darwinists, the neo-Darwinians, and the intelligent design people. We won't be talking about the creationism guys because those people are bunk, or at least the theory is. Well, we'll mention it briefly just because... Uh, it's relevant to the debate. But what is the nature of this debate like? And is there, e- is there even a debate? Um, the impression I had for years was that there was no debate, um, that evolutionary science was settled science. Everything was you know, understood. We knew exactly how everything worked. And anyone that didn't believe so and that was a critic of neo-Darwinism was um, just a, a fool and a knave or worse, maybe they were religious. And then several years ago, I you know, got a bit curious, and so I started reading some of the things coming out of the so-called like, intelligent design camp. Because I was never convinced, or you know, I, I was never even um, slightly convinced or persuaded to read anything by like, the creationists. So these would be like the, the New Earth create, or what are they called? The... The young Earth, young, young Earth, Earth creationists, creationists, where you know the Earth is something like six thousand years old, and um, the only reason there are dinosaur bones is because God put them there to test our faith, um, that sort of thing. Well, I mean, that's kind of a, a caricature because there are some, you know, from what I, from what little I have read, there are some young Earth creationists that actually, um, you know, like the flat Earthers, they have a whole um, like system of why they believe the what they believe. That's all kind of like. It, coherent in a sense, even if it falls apart under closer scrutiny. But um, um, for the most part, a lot of these people, like they're not, they're not stupid. Like they're at least smart in what they get wrong, um, or at least maybe smart isn't the right word. Maybe clever or something like that. So I started reading some of the stuff from the actual evolution uh, intelligent design people, and found out that oh wow, these guys have some interesting things to say. Maybe they're not so crazy. Um, because if we look at the history of the kind of intelligent design movement or how, how it's shaped over the past, uh, I guess, 30 years, I don't know exactly, but I think a lot of the, you know, the first, some of the first big books that were published criticizing Darwinism were in the 80s, like from this intelligent design perspective, and then they've kind of like uh, expanded since then to the point where we now have like uh, the Discovery Institute and various... Um, various scholars and groups that are devoted to this kind of thing. But one of the things that they are successful at is pointing out that some of the actual flaws in Darwinist thinking, that you you are shocked on first reading that the Darwinists themself, themselves admit in their papers. Like they, they might say, oh, well, we have no idea how this happens. Or, um, or they'll come up with an explanation and say, oh, this must be how this happens, but no one agrees on it, and you'll find like... 30 different theories trying to explain the same thing. And when there are 30 different theories and no one agrees with anyone else, then you can be pretty sure that the vast majority, well, either all of those theories are wrong or all of them but one are wrong. And if, you know, if no one else is latching on to that one right theory, then chances are all of them are wrong because they, you know, they're not persuasive enough to actually explain what they are setting out to explain. So after reading some of these guys, like I think I, I read some Stephen Meyer and uh, William Dembski, um, a little bit of, I think his name is Michael Behe, um, 
so I read some of these guys and I was like, well, wow, you know, they, they're, they're saying some things that, that the, the, like the neo-Darwinists can't rebut, like they don't have a response to. So why is this, why is this so controversial? Because it's a hugely controversial thing. Like, you know, you can't teach, you can't even mention intelligent design in university courses or in, um, the, the only way, like, you can maybe sneak it by the, the, the peer reviewers for academic journals is, well, for, you can say anything you want um, criticizing it, but to say, to say oh, this is, intel this is suggestive of intelligent design, you know, you, won't be, you can't get that published. You can publish a paper, you know, you can be an intelligent design theorist and publish a paper um, that kind of supports your theory as long as you just don't mention it. You just say, oh, look at this thing that we found out that's very interesting. Hmm, isn't that curious? And as long as you don't conclude, oh, this must be the result of an intelligent designer designing this system, then you can get away with it. It's good science. But the moment that you bring intelligent design into it, it's like it's totally off limits and you will be, um, you'll be shunned out of the scientific community and no one will listen to you and you'll have your, your name blackened and your character assassinated and that will be the end of it. You just cannot go there. But again, when you look at what a lot of Darwinists even... Well, I'm going to use neo-Darwinists and Darwinists and all those, you know, as just um, different words for the same thing because it can get annoying. So whenever I say Darwinists, I'm not talking about literal Darwinists from, um, you know, who believe what Darwin believed because Darwinism has changed over time, especially as we discovered, um, the, you know, the, the DNA code and several big discoveries since then. But anyways, um, a lot of Darwinists, even like Richard Dawkins, when they're cornered, they'll say something very revealing. So there have been interviews with Richard Dawkins where they say, someone said, oh, what's the origin of life? You know, where did DNA come from? And he says, oh, well, maybe, you know, maybe one day we'll find out that it was a, you know, some vastly intelligent alien species that, you know, they, well, they must have evolved on their own, but they were, might have been the ones that seeded us. And when we're searching, when we're looking through our DNA, we might even discover the, the signature of the intelligent designer that, that created our DNA. And so, and I, of course, Richard Dawkins is the supreme Darwinist, anti-intelligent design person. And here he is admitting that, oh, we might just find the, the signature of an intelligent designer in our DNA. Well, okay, how does that mesh with every scientist completely bashing anyone that says that that's uh, a plausible idea and not accepting any of their research and just totally ignoring them. How, you know, how can you square those two things? Well, it's not really possible. You can't square them. And I think the, the biggest reason is that a lot of the intelligent design people, not all of them, but a lot of them are Christian. And so they believe that the intelligent designer is God. Even if they don't say it in their in their books, or if they do, they say, "Oh, well, you know, this is totally unprovable. This has nothing to do with the science." You know, I personally think that this is this is that the intelligent designer is God. But you know, theoretically, it can be anything. It can be an alien. That would just push the, push the question back for how did the alien inv uh, evolve? Um, or you know, it could be something we just don't understand. But but that's it. So um, I, there was this one book we've been reading re recently, uh, Evolution 2.0 by Perry Marshall. A really good book, really, really interesting stuff in there. And and one of the things that he says is he kind of gives the logic behind this kind of thinking. Um, let me just see if I can find it here. Give me a second. Okay, so he writes, they, 
um, like the anti anti intelligent design people. They steadfastly refuse to accept any fact that might seem to support any kind of purpose in nature. After months of discussion, he's talking about the debates he'd have online that he uh, kind of sought, he sought out, he kind of said, come at me, bros, and uh, started just debating anyone that he, could, uh, that he could find to try to poke holes in his theory. So he says, after months of discussion, the infidels, that's the people on these atheist blog, this atheist website um, slash forum, their logic seemed to run something like this. One, God does not exist. Two, code, you know, as in the DNA code, implies God. Three, therefore DNA is not a code. So these people were denying the fact that DNA is a code, and that seemingly the only reason they were doing that, they were denying this very basic fact accepted by pretty much everyone doing evolutionary like biology and work on the genome, they're denying that DNA is a code simply because his argument implied that that meant that maybe it was God that designed it. So they had to basically deny uh, a very basic and accepted, it's accepted fact in order to preserve their first premise there, which was that God does not exist. And that just, you know, th that's what happens when you are arguing based on a, a previous ideology a previous, like, firmly held belief that new facts or even, you know, accepted facts won't won't be able to change your mind. You will, in fact, refit the facts in your in your own mind. Um, you might uh, transpose them and mutate them <laughs> in order to create this this form where it still makes sense for you. So you can hold on to that initial premise when the initial premise is faulty and leads you to thinking poorly. Now, the funny thing is, is that they they you don't even have to admit the second premise in that little logical um, syllogism that God that, that code implies a God. Um, theoretically, you can get around that, like Dawkins did by saying, oh, well, maybe some other type of evolution just happened somewhere else, and then an al that, alien, that alien intelligence created our code. You could say that. Now, of course, like I just said earlier, that still pushes the question back of how that other al alien intelligence um, came to be. But at least it's still plausible, and it can. And if we had incontrovertible evidence that everyone accepted that our DNA was a was a uh, an intelligently designed code, then at least you could say, okay, some other intelligence just designed us, right? I still I don't have to believe in God because I really don't want to have to believe in God, and so I can you know my my mental my little safe place in my mind is still there. You know I I, I don't need to ha go have a you know, a cry, a cry room at my university where I can go and whine. So I'm still safe. And, you know, what's the big deal? But anyways, that was just a, a rambling way, a rambling introduction to our subject. But um, uh, so from there, what do you have to say to that, say about that, Corey? Well, I think it, that touches on the number of the problems with a Darwinian theory that it doesn't solve. Uh, you know, it doesn't solve the problem of the origins of this genetic code. And, you know, that's literally what it is. It's a genetic language. And, you know, to have a language, you need to have intent. Um, and so, you know, it doesn't account for the origins of this, you know, seemingly intelligent intent behind the language and, and everything that evolved from the, you know, very beginnings of that code, uh, you know, giving birth or, you know, coming into being on the planet. 
And then it also doesn't explain how uh, from that there arose so many different variations of species and and types of you know bacteria and viruses and and all of the different combinations that have you know created you know that we basically stand on the shoulders of all of these mm-hmm. these beings they they explain it in terms of you know randomness in order to you know get rid of any sort of purpose mm-hmm. in nature um which is its own sort of dogma which is like i said you don't want to open up that can of worms mm-hmm. because as soon as you do then you have to take a look at the sheer complexity of the purposefulness of the behavior of all of these you know the cell bacteria uh entire species individuals and in order to you know just kind of brush that off for a long time they they referred to uh you know random mutations but as uh, we talked about in that book evolution 2.0 uh, Perry Marshall, he was, a, I believe he was an electric engineer, engineer, an electrical engineer who, you know, he was driven by his faith, um, a, a crisis in uh, of faith and his engineering, you know, uh, intelligence to understand the origins of life in a scientific way, you know, in taking into account as much of the picture as you possibly could. And he, you know, he pointed out as an engineer, you don't randomly uh to try and destroy things, you know, you don't randomly scratch CDs mm-hmm. or randomly do anything in order to create a, a more fine-tuned and efficient product. Mm-hmm. What you do is you engineer it and you, you know, you troubleshoot and it takes a ton of painstaking discipline in order to get things to work properly, to work at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, using that sort of an analogy, he, you know, he analyzed the technology of the cell and of of species and he came up with the and he saw what they were really doing and the purposefulness in in terms of you know cellular behavior and you know troubleshooting various problems ever since the you know beginning of life on earth and how that in and of itself was its own form of intelligence and so you can look at it in terms of the what was the intelligence that created life was there any intelligence that created life? But then it's undeniable when you look at life itself that there is definitely an intelligent form of uh, processing going on, whether it's in terms of it's unpacking its own DNA, transpo- uh, transposing different DNA segments um, in order to you know solve the problems of you know starvation. Or there's all sorts of different things going on. And he came up with a whole toolkit, of, and I'm sure you know we'll probably touch on that at some point. But there's definitely it seems like two forms of intelligence one you don't necessarily need to go there and you know open up the can of worms and say was there an intelligent being that you know created it but it's fun to imagine maybe there's this geek you know (laughs) scientist cosmic uh, cosmic geek who's just playing you know uh the strategy game with his (laughs) with all these living beings you know all this bacteria conquered this bacteria and now it gave birth to this but cosmic sims the cause yeah exactly the cosmic sims but um you know it just to to just brush it all off as being purposeless and random is unscientific. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you can't prove that anything is is random. You know. Yeah, and that's an argument that he makes in the book. I I, I haven't. I've got like sixty pages left in that book, along with one of the appendices, which in which he he gives like the the argument for why it's scientifically impossible to prove randomness. Um, so I haven't gotten in the details of that one yet. So, um, but uh, that would be for. For another time, or for the mathematicians, but um, just carrying on something that you said there, Corey, is, is that we, like humans, naturally have a kind of design detection, 
and we just intuitively know it. And as far as we know, we're we're really good at it. Um, it goes wrong sometimes, but when it's right, it's right. So, for example, when you're walking, you know, you're walking in the forest and you see a castle, you don't say, you don't think, oh, well, look at that, look at what nature managed to produce. It's like this castle just came out of like random processes, and there are no humans around, so. So obviously humans didn't make it, but but just oh wow, you know nature's amazing. It, it can produce castles all on its own. It's like no, we don't do that. We see that we see we see a function and a form, and we infer from that an an intelligent designer, which would be a a, a human, right? A, well, humans, um, you know, someone or some people th- thought this through, had the you know the vision of this castle, started working on it, and put it together for us using certain techniques for a certain purpose. And they create it, and we think the same thing with books, right? When we, um, and and we we put it into practice every day, like when we're on the internet and we go to a website and we find a website that is just gibberish, we can tell that it's a that it's a spam website that was just set up by you know by a bot that someone created to to get you know Google ad money or something like that, and and we so we can detect this kind of design now, and and so when we look at life around us, when we look at the 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 properties that life has naturally we say oh that's just you know that's amazing these ser- serve certain purposes oh what does the liver do oh it serves that purpose oh this is what the lungs are for oh and 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 this part of the body is for this so that this doesn't happen and we're constantly describing everything from the from the like from the body itself the, like the whole body down to all the organ systems and all all the different parts of the nervous system right down to the individual cells and everything in that cell we describe them in terms of purposes and we give them like verbs and actions and reactions it's like oh and this this cell it doesn't like when this happens so then it does that and in order to do this you know the, the cells want to do this so then they do this we're constantly using the language of language of agents you know as if they're little animals you know, thinking in some way and planning and and doing things, and it just comes naturally to us. And and it, all the scientists do that too. Now, some of them will will say, "Oh, well, we have to keep in mind that this is just metaphorical language. There's actually no purpose. We're just we're just talking as if it as if it's purposeful because it looks purposeful. When really that's just a it's really a lot of mental uh, gymnastics just to just to justify the ideology." that they are um, that they are putting into their science. So what this comes back to again, it's that faulty logic that's going on. Because what it seems what it seems happened is that around the time of Darwin, when there was this great reaction um, against religion, you know, the like the follow, following through from the Enlightenment, it was this um, you know the age of reason where we could explain things. And we didn't have to to find recourse in God, and and the reason for that was because the, a lot of the 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 official dogma for centuries had been really you know just stupid, right? It it had stagnated to the point where people couldn't think. They couldn't think originally. They couldn't discover new things because there was this. There were all these dumb dogmas that didn't make any sense. And so in rejecting that, it was it was throwing baby Jesus out with the bathwater because there was a lot of dumb stuff in what people thought and what the official culture was and the official um the official what the official explanations could be for things. And so as a product of all this, there was this kind of overreaction against religion and against um any kind of um, like scientific or just reasonable understanding of the, of the metaphysical, of the spiritual, of the higher. And so when Darwin came along, it was like, okay, 
here's a system, here's an explanation, here's a theory that can account for what we see in nature, what looks to be purposeful and what seems to be designed, but here's how it happens just all naturally. So here's, here's an explanation where we don't have, again, like all these other things, we don't have to, have to come back to God to explain it. It just happens. And, and it happens because um, well, these, just these gradual changes, and something will gradually change, and then we'll have all these different variations, and then natural selection will select which ones are, are successful because all the other ones die, and so the best, the, the, you know, the best product wins, essentially, in the marketplace of biology. And there you have it. Then, then that's a way of getting from something really simple to something really complex. Now, it's a great idea. You know, it just happens to be wrong. Because once the genetic code was discovered, and so we, we, now we understood what was inside cells and how all these things were working, we could say, okay, well, now there's a genetic code. Oh, and what are these, these like segments of DNA? They're, okay, they're genes. And they, 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 they are the codes that will produce proteins. And the proteins do all these different things, like all, all these amazing things within the cell and within the body. And so, oh, so now we can see where the source of the variation must be. It's, it's in the DNA. So the DNA changes, and then that produces different variations in the, in the phenotype, in the, the expression of the genes in, in the organism. So you'll have like a species, and then the DNA will change in little, in little ways, and that will produce you know, variations in the species, so the different individuals with different properties, and then the ones with the best, des the best well not design, the best features, the best variation, those will be the ones that survive. And the, the other ones will die. And it's like, okay, great. So now, now we've got the, the, the mechanism for how this actually works. Because Darwin had no idea what was in the cells. You know, all the biologists of the time, they just thought that cells were these um, simple, like homogenous little blobs of nothing that, that made up the, the body, right? That they were indivisible, like the, the biological atoms of, uh, of what makes things things. But no, then we find out that they're vastly more complex than that. Like cells are more complex than the, the most complex computers that we've developed. They're remarkably complex the, to, the, to the point where we still don't comprehend them. Like there are still mysteries in the cells that we are discovering, well, the sciences that, that scientists are discovering, especially when we look at, like, at so-called junk DNA. For years, scientists thought it was junk DNA, that there was 97% of the of the of the uh, genetic code was just the the remainders and the leftovers from all this this like poking around in the dark that the the, the genome does in order to find these variations so and it just it's just the the detritus that's that collected over billions of years of evolution and that's just the stuff that we don't use anymore well now with the i believe it's the encode project the sci scientists are finding out that all of it is meaningful there's a purpose for all of that junk DNA. Some of it we don't know yet, but just every, every little bit we're finding that there are new, new purposes and new ways in which all of this DNA affects the expression of the entire, the entire genome. And so it's just, it's vastly complex. But when we, when we look at the, the so the neo-Darwinist um, explanation, because Dar just like I said, Darwin didn't know what DNA was, so once we discovered what DNA was, then that led to this, the neo-Darwinism. And the idea was to, so where do these variations come from? Well, it's from mutations in the genome. So how do those muta mutations get there? 
Well, if there's no purpose in the universe, because we've already established that, there's no God in the universe, there's no purpose, all there is is blind uh, chemical, physical processes. You know, like we see when we're, when we're doing um, chemistry experiments, it's just there are law, physical laws, there are ways in, lawful ways in which matter interacts, and that's it. You know, there's no purpose, everything else is just accident, it's just what happens when random things happen. And so that must be what happens in the in the genome to produce random mutations. So we know, you know, or scientists knew that when there are like uh, when DNA is replicated, there are certain what they call transcription errors. So like one letter in the code will get copied wrong, and or you'll get blasted by a little bit of radiation, and that will exchange one little one letter in your code for another, and so you've got a mutation. And then when you have enough of those mutations, eventually you're going to get uh, a beneficial one, and th and then that will be the 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 great new um, beneficial mutation that will then be selected for in natural selection, and that will slowly and steadily lead to bigger and better species, and that's what led to us, because like so, humans are the result of billions of years of random mutations and natural selection. Now there are, but again. That's not actually what happens. So in Perry Marshall's book, he, he I'm going to, uh, I'm going to refer to two sources here. One will be Perry Marshall, and the other is a book, uh, Undeniable, by Douglas Axe. And in Evolution 2.0, Marshall, he refers to all the studies done in the 20th century on, for example, fruit flies, and among other, mostly on fruit flies, I think all these experiments were done, but similar experiments have been done you know, on other, um, like insects and animals like this, where they tried to put, the, the researchers t doing these tests tried to put that idea to the test and to get as many random mutations as possible in the genomes of these creatures to see how many, like what the percentages of beneficial mutations that come about randomly. And of course they find that none of them are beneficial. In fact, some are neutral, but most of them are detrimental or fatal. Never do you find a, a random mutation that actually uh, creates a better species, a, a better organism. And in fact, uh, some of the, if they were beneficial, it was because the flies' uh, cells were repairing uh, the, from the damage, from the mutation. Mm -hmm. So then they were becoming more resistant to radiation. Right. So what we actually had was, well, in these experiments, was... The existing species, existing cells within those, the members of those species, were actually trying to do error correction. They were realizing something was wrong and then being like, oh crap, okay, we got to fix this. So they were actively trying to fix the, the random mutations that were coming in. Now, the, so when, when you see the, the genome as a code, then you understand, and this is why engineers are often... Um, you know, better people to comment on this because they're coming in from the outside. They actually understand information technology and information theory. When you have a code and you insert some randomness into that code, it's like fatal to the program. It's like when you, when you, um, when you send an email, this is one of the examples that Perry Marshall gives. There are several levels of encoding whenever you send an email, like with, a, with an attachment. And if you screw up, if, if something, if some little error gets put into that any level any level of those levels of code 
then you get what you've probably all experienced when you open up a file and it's just you know it won't open or it'll open in your you know your text file and it's just a bunch of gibberish and it's unrecoverable so mutate what the genome actually does it is designed in order to prevent any kind of like random mutation because random mutations are bad and they lead to uh, potentially to your death because you need all those systems to be operating optimally so this is where douglas axe comes in he's the author of this book undeniable how biology confirms our intuition that life is designed now this guy uh, i first heard about him in both of stephen meyer's books stephen meyer is an intelligent design guy he wrote the signature in the cell and uh, Darwin's Doubt on the Cambrian explosion of life forms. Um, and I'd first, I th well, I think I first heard about Meyer <clears throat> from Thomas Nagel. It might have been the other way around, though. But Thomas Nagel is the American philosopher who wrote the book Mind and Cosmos. Um, Nagel is a, a famous atheist who wrote this book in 2012, arguing that the neo-Darwinist conception of reality is wrong and can't, can't account for biology and can't account like in its wider com context of materialism can't account for consciousness reason uh, values all of these things it's it's a it's a sterile sterile and ineffective philosophy that can't account for reality and he referenced uh, Stephen Meyer's book signature in the cell as being well this is you know this is a good book check this out so uh, I checked out this book and in it he talks about the research of Douglas Axe and this, book's, this book that Axe wrote um, just a couple of years ago, it was released, is about his research, because he's another guy that works in the lab trying to do things. He's not just a theorist. He's not, um, like, and that's pretty much what most of, most of the Darwinists are. Um, even if they do their own research, when it comes to these sorts of things, they're just theorists. So when it comes to um, random mutation and natural selection, they just know about that in theory. They haven't actually done any lab tests to demonstrate what they're talking about. They just take it, take it as a given. So one of the benefits of a guy like Douglas Axe is that he, he says, okay, well, let's take this into the lab and see what actually works, see what we can do. So the experiments that he did, he did with his team were, um, he had the same question that Perry Marshall had. What's the percentage, right? So what's the percentage of, um, he used protein specifically. So let's say you've got a you, you need you've got a protein that's like 100 amino acids. For those 100, 100 for those 100 positions of you know of DNA that will make up that protein, how many possible proteins are there that are 100 amino acids long? And what there are like 21 amino acids or something like that. Um, so it'll be 21 you know 21 times 21 times 21 all the way for 100 right? So you have this this large um, set of possible proteins that are 100 amino acids long. So what are the percentage of those that are functional? Well, first, what are the percentage of those that will fold? Because one of the things about proteins is that they need to fold into a stable shape. So you, you can get protein, like a, uh, a, a protein chain coded from DNA, and this, so this, this could be totally random or, or whatever, just using those, those, that set of possible proteins a lot, uh, the, the majority of those proteins won't fold because you need a, a, certain, uh, a certain sequence of amino acids in order for you know, the, the, the properties, the, the electromagnetic properties of those, of those individual amino acids to be attracted to each other and then um, 
Um, you know, you've got cell machinery that will actively take little bits and fold them into shape, fold them into the, the functional shape that then is stable. So only some proteins will fold a into a stable sh shape, but only some of those proteins will be functional, like they'll actually do a job in the cell. So he wanted to find out, well, what, what are the percentages? And, and once you know that, once you figure that out, well, he, he uh, and his team just, they, they figured this out, basically. And they, they found out, like, so let's say you have a protein, a functional protein, and then, then you have to, if you want evolution to work through, through natural selection or through random mutation in natural selection, Natural selection, everyone admits, only works on something that already works, right? It has to, it has to be full, well, it has to be there in order for natural selection to act on it. So if you have all of these proteins that won't even fold, those are just abortions because they, they won't even stick around long enough to be selected for. So if you have a protein that is, let's say, a simple protein, what how long will it be? How many mutations have to happen for that protein through, through um, random mutations to acquire the, the sequence of a new protein that folds and that is functional? So you can imagine you know, it's, it's got all these steps to go through to get from one protein to another. And if it's random, what you actually find is that it's something like... Um, uh, let me see if I can find the the quote for the math that they eventually figured out. So he's writing, okay, as I said at the beginning of chapter, chapter 5, the result was striking. Of the possible genes encoding protein chains 153 amino acids in length, only about 1 in 100 trillion 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 is expected to encode a chain that folds well enough to perform a biological function. Now, that is a, a huge number. Um, he continues, just to give a, some idea of the scale of that number. So we estimated, uh, oh, let's see. This requires a background. So he uses this, um, this analogy, this kind of thought experiment to, to get an idea across of what it's like to, to search a space of possibilities and find the right answer. So he gives two examples. One would be, so let's say that you have to, or that you want, well, let's just take the, like, the surface of the Earth and you designate one spot on that earth the size of a pinhead. Um, and then, in the, in the entire world, then you have this random process where you're dropping pins randomly from the sky, or whatever. And what are the chances that, you're, that you are randomly going to, to hit that, that one pinhead-sized target on a, on a target that is the size of the, of the, the surface of the earth? And he uses that as a kind of um, a reference point for how random things, or how likely things are to happen. And he uses another method, and that would be a, um, a sound-detecting robot that is looking for the, the sound of the crowd in a certain stadium at a sports game. And how it'll, ha it'll have to, like, if it's on the other side of the globe, right, and it's, it's, it's listening for this... Um, this sound that it knows is a certain number of decibels, whatever, 
all it knows is it's looking for sound, right? So it's going to be attracted to the closest sound to it, which might be a train passing by or a dog barking or a bunch of people talking. And then it's going to be this long process. It probably will never find the stadium that it's looking for, but there's a chance that it will. Now, but then again, if it starts close to the stadium, then it will it will naturally find it, right? So if it's just 50 meters away, it's going to hear the stadium and it's going to be attracted towards it. But if it's any, if it's, if it's further away, even like, you know, a, a number of miles away, chances are it, it's not going to find it very well just by like, we would only find it randomly. So with that in mind, he, he writes, um, so as hard as it was for our noise seeking robot in chapter seven to find a stadium, finding a biological invention is much harder even at the low level of a single protein. We estimated that stadium noise must cover one part in 100,000 of the Earth's surface. So divide the Earth's surface into to 100,000. And um, I, I actually can't remember how that makes sense in reference to what he said before. But um, that's, how, that's how big the, the, the size of the, the, the stadium noise, like the, the, the area of the Earth where the stadium noise is heard, will have to be in order for the robot to find it. So... Instead of the Earth's surface for a search space, try picturing a sphere the size of the visible universe, 28 billion light years in diameter. And instead of a target that covers 6,000 square kilometers, try picturing one the size of a hydrogen atom. Now that's a target we can say safely write off as lost in space. So imagine that. Imagine a target the size of a, uh, of a hydrogen atom on the, surf, on the surface of a sphere the size of the known universe. And that is, and to find that target randomly is how likely you are to find um, a, uh, a protein, uh, an amino acid's like sequence to make up a protein that is functional. So you've got a functional protein and you want to find another one. To find it randomly, those are the same odds as, you know, flicking a, a pin into the universe and having it randomly pick that one spot on the entire you know surface of this globe that is the size of the universe which is physically impossible so he gives another way of thinking of numbers in terms of their their probabilities so he says if a number is um has as many digits as like a line of text on a page um or maybe two lines of text so maybe what like uh 30 30 to 60 characters that's physically possible. Like those odds are physically possible. That means that through through the entire history of the of the universe, all the physical events that happened, um, so all all the time and all the space of the universe and all the atoms, that is all enough to 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 go through a you know a number of events, a number of searches in order to find um, to 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 create something that is highly improbable, right? So if you have um, like, let's say you've got a typewriter, right? And it's been programmed with all of the, like all of the cells, or not all the cells, but all of the atoms in the universe for billions of years, you might be able to get, like, randomly, it might be able to produce, like, a short um, string of what we would recognize as text or meaningful text. So it might be, like, the first seven words of, of the Bible or a, sh a Shakespeare play or something like that. And that would be the limit of what random what randomness can like um, realistically produce. He says, if there's a, a, a number of uh, a number of like a probability number that is any larger than that, it's physically impossible. It might be like th at least theoretically possible, um, but 
practically when it comes to, to actual, um, like the chances of it actually happening in the physical universe, it, we can write it off as impossible. That would be like, you know, monkeys at a typewriter producing, um, you know, like Hamlet or something, mm -hmm. like an exact replica of Hamlet. It's, it's, it'll never happen because there aren't enough rant, like resources in the universe for there to be enough repetitions to get that outcome. And he gives one example of how we can think of numbers this big. Like he, he says, let's take the example of every possible um, pixelated image, something like 300 by 200 pixels wide. Now, every, every one of those pixel, pixels, there are um, like hundreds of different possibilities for what that one pixel will look like because there are colors and there are very, or, um, gradations of color. And then when you, when you take all of those pixels and you, um, and you randomize all of them, right? So we've got, like, let's say we could, Im we could imagine a um, digital image creating like mechanism that would just randomly create um, images using that number of pixels, there's something like, um, like the number of, of possible pictures that size, like the number itself would fill a, like a 300-page book or something like that. That's how many possible images there are using that number of pixels. So the chance of finding like a specific image in that random set of like, he used the example of Abraham Lincoln, would be one in that number that's 300 pages long, which is so improbable that it is physically impossible. And um, so like that number where we find, where we're looking for proteins in like protein space, it's, it's not, I don't think it's, it's not that as, Im it's not that big a number, but it's big a number, uh, as, uh, it's big enough a number that it is still physically impossible. So that leads to the question, um, <clears throat> well that leads part of the way. So a guy like Axe, um, he leaves, like, he doesn't get into this specifically. He, he is, in his book, he is, like Meyer, like, openly Christian, and he believes that God is the explanation for, like, the, is the intelligence behind the, the design that we see in nature. Uh, God is the intelligent designer. So, in, in this case, we've got, well, where do, the, we've got the problem, well, where do new proteins come from if they are so improbable that, that random mutation can't possibly produce them? Because there there isn't enough time and there isn't enough time and resources in the entire universe to create like a single new protein of that length. So how are new proteins involved? Well, he doesn't explicitly say it, but it sounds to me like like he he would be like um, um, he would say this would be a kind of like divine intervention that God would be cre newly creating these um, these creatures and creating them in, to the point where like. You know, you, you create a new species. Like, there's a dolphin. It's like, it's not just a, a variation of some other species. It's a, it's, its own species, and it and it's, has its own kind of dolphin-ness to it. And we see that with, um, with creatures, like, all over, right? We see, we see a creature, and it seems to just have this, um, this wholeness to it. Like, it is, it is its own thing. It doesn't seem like just some some random, like, mutated offshoot from something else. It's like, it, ha it is a form of perfection, really. M like, when we look at species, it's like, that, that species looks like it's exactly what it needs to be. Um, of course, there are some species that don't, that seem like they have, um, um, <clears throat> like, leftovers or errors in them, like the, like the, the, there's the platypus, the platypus, <laughs> <laughs> the anteater, the, um, the, 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 
the whale with its vestigial foot bones, you know, stuck in the, the back of its body there. Um, to, to go back to that, Acts would say, okay, that's God that does that. The Darwinists would say, no, there's no God whatsoever. It's all just random. What I like about Perry Marshall, and I was kind of surprised when I read this because I wasn't expecting it, is that he takes a kind of middle road that very few people take. Um, I've only encountered, I think, one or two other people in, in you know, all the reading I've done on this that, kind of, that take this kind of approach, where he says, well, no, let's, let's not leave that to God. Let's look at, at what can possibly be the response to that without just rec- having recourse to, to explaining it in terms of God, because that's kind of a cheap answer. That's, that's one of the answers that led to the rejection of God in, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago over that period of time, was that people just, just writing off a thing they couldn't explain, oh, well, that's just God. And then, oh, well, what do you know? Some clever scientist or philosopher comes along thinking through the problem and says, oh, well, no, that actually isn't God, because here's the explanation for it. And no, those, thi- those things we just accept nowadays, uh, like we know the explanation for them, but for hundreds of years, it was traditionally thought that the, the explanation for those things was God. Oh, well, you know, don't think about it, because that's just what God does. God did that. And it's, ch- like I said, it's cheap. It, uh, it's lazy to just say, oh, well, that's God. Maybe there's another explanation for it. So that's what Perry Marshall gets into. He argues that while there, may, you know, while there is um, a space for input from the intelligent designer, we can't be f- sure where it is. So let's try as hard as we can to find out what's really going on. And this is where he gets into his, um, his Swiss Army blade of evolutionary processes, which maybe we can describe a little bit now. Where do you, th- where do you want to go with that, Corey? Well, yeah, so we touched on the this whole idea that um, that randomness is not responsible for the evolution of species. Um, and that natural selection plays a big role in the evolution of species, but uh, that only comes into being after evolution has taken place, after the cells have begun to adapt and to um and to yeah to adapt to their environment and then natural selection comes along and says you know well you survive or you didn't um you know this uh, natural selection is you know that that comes into play after um after evolution has already got the ball rolling so in the 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 toolkit that perry uh, talks about is all of the different um, aspects of evolution that come into play before natural selection um, takes place. So it's all about the cell's capacity to adapt and to generate new features and even new species by engineering its own um, genetics in real time. And that takes place through, I think he had five different... Yeah. Uh, five different forms in the in the toolkit. And he said that this was the antithesis of that sterile um, evolutionary neo-Darwinian way of looking at the world because this is something that people can use. This toolkit is something that we can use in order to engineer our our lives better, to live our lives in a more um, productive and efficient way. But so the, the five steps are one was the hybridization where two species will you know unite and their um, and double their their genetic potential and then create a new species and one uh, one really interesting example of this was 
the two sea squirts, two different species of sea squirts uniting and creating a vertebrate hagfish. They that's, were invertebrate. That's just the best name for a species. I know. So. It's so great. And then that species going on to be the, become the ancestor of all, you know, other, you know, jawed vertebrate uh, mammals and, and birds and reptiles. And then there was also uh, symbiosis uh, or symbiogenesis where two different species will, um, they'll come together, like in the case of, you know, different bacteria, they could unite and create a whole different, they will actually inject their genetic material into one another and create an entirely different strand and possibly a different species. Um, there's also viral infections that they found that viruses can, you know, when they infect, uh, especially uh, retroviruses, they They've been found to play a role in the creation of the placenta and keeping the mother from actually the mother's body from killing the young. Um, and it's, if I remember correctly, it's actually a, a process that was that has happened like three to five times, where it's a different virus that plays the same role in like creating the placentas, making the it creates like a layer on the a placenta, uh, like a, a filtering like protective layer, and so it is a. One of those examples of what do they call it convergent evolution where mm -hmm. the different processes different trends will will reach the same result using completely different pathways so that's very interesting what it does what the retrovirus does it actually inserts itself into the genetic code um, and kind of like a, it hijacks your, your your genome to give itself a, a nice warm place to live yeah, researchers have even found retroviruses uh, actually remodeling the chromosomes of different species and helping to fast-track their creation of new species. Mm -hmm. So there's that sort of, um, you know, just just out there, you know, it just this whole new realm of, of viral infection creating uh, species, creating new species, new traits. Uh, so that was the that was one of the the tools in the toolkit. Then the other one was, I believe, it was the transposition of different um, nucleotides or different uh, genes um, on the DNA, and in order for the cell to, you know, get rid of things that aren't working and to uh, well, to reach to hack basically yeah. hack its DNA. It shakes the shakes things up a bit, so it would be like cut and pasting, right? So you take so, take something you've written. You think, oh well, let's see what happens if I move this sentence here instead of there. So what it does, it it cuts up the the genome and it rearranges the parts. Basically, it'll say, I'm going to take this sequence and instead of having it here, I'm going to move it over there. And this process too, it, it, by all indications, it is a purposeful proce process. It's not like it's just randomly looking for spots to put it because that might be fatal. Somehow the the cell knows by doing this transposition process how to do it in such a way like we like we do when we edit our own text something that we've written it's not like we just say okay i want to move this sentence so i'm just going to pick a random spot to put this sentence because you'll put you'll end up putting it somewhere where it doesn't make any sense like in the middle of a different sentence about something completely different no what we do is we say okay this sentence will actually work better here i'm going to move it here Oh, well, that kind of works, but no, I want to move it to a better spot, so I'm going to move it here. And that's actually what the cell accomplishes. It moves things around in such a way that, that they are adaptive, mm -hmm. so that they actually work. They actually produce something. It's not a random process. Mm-hmm.
Um, then there's another the another blade of the you know the evolution Swiss Army knife was epigenetics. Um, Perry describes this as the the process by which genes are grayed out. You know, like you see grayed text on a you know computer program or something. It's not active, um, and that so that it can alter the DNA's function without actually changing the DNA sequence. And that was a big. I know that for the past decade or so, that's been big news is the fact that you know genes aren't um you know set in stone that you don't have a gene for being you know stupid or a gene for being fat or a gene for you know falling off your bike and blaming russia there's uh you know all of these things have powerful environmental and cellular and you know the cellular environment the your outside environment um you know how you act the choices that you make can impact the manifestation of your your dna um, and so epigenetics is one way for your cells to decide, you know, for lack of a better word, what to manifest mm -hmm. and when to manifest it, when it's important to manifest it. Um, yeah, so that the coding sequences, they stay the same, but their expression is altered uh, through all sorts of different mechanisms. Yeah, so it would be like... An well, a general example would be something happens in the environment, and then the cells are like, "Oh, this is bad. You know, we can't we can't use this process right now. We have to use this one, or we have to shut this program off and start this one up because maybe it's too hot. So we have to turn off these programs that are good when it's cold and turn on these other ones that will help. You know, living in a hot environment. So they're actually the epigenetic responses are responsive to the conditions of the cell and their intelligent responses. It's like, oh no, th things have changed. This is bad. We have to, we have to, um, you know, turn up or down the thermostat. We have to do this and that. We have to get our game together because if we, if we keep doing things the way we've been doing them, we're not going to survive this new environment. So let's change things up um, and by switching these genes and gene expressions on and off so that we can survive this thing. So the, like all of these types of, uh, all these blades in the Swiss Army knife, they're examples of mutations, but none of them are random mutations. They're all, um, they're all adaptive mutations. So that what this means is that they all happen, well, they don't necessarily all happen in a period of stress, but one of the things that he says is that it seems that like a lot of the science re scientists researching these, that they ha they seem to happen a lot of the time um, in, in periods of environmental stress. So when things are are going differently a in a bad way. So he gives the example of the Dutch women in um, was it just after World War II, I think, where the the pregnant mothers were mal uh, malnourished, and that had an epigenetic response in them, and then their children were born. Um, like smaller and and slightly weaker because they needed to, well the 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 system was intelligent enough to say okay the children if like when I when when the when my when my mommy host body you know gives birth to this child it's not going to be able to survive on this level of of nutrition so I have to like switch it up in such a way that it will be able to survive but that ended up carrying over for like three generations where the, the the children were born with this um, with these adaptations to an environment that that w that only applied like um, you know sixty seventy years ago, um, so all of these mutations they're they're adaptive and they're they're um, immediate. Mm -hmm. So it's not this long gradual random process. 
it's an immediate thing, like transposition. Okay, we have to shake things up a bit. Do it now. Mm -hmm. um, species hybrid hybrid hybridization. Two species come together. There you go. Like it, you've got a new species because it works. And then over the next like several generations, things get ironed out, and you you end up with this new species that is the product of two previous species, where they have um, turned on and off different. Uh, different genes from the two respective genomes to create a new synthesis that then um, is viable on its own, and it won't be able to to even reproduce with mm -hmm. the the previous either of the previous species. It creates its own new better species. Yeah, it fits the definition of a brand new species, mm -hmm. and it it helps. It provides a, a new theoretical explanation for. Um, you know, some of the problems that came with like, neo-Darwinism, like the fact that, you know, in the Cambrian explosion, um, I think it was, was it Steve Meyer, I believe, he, mm -hmm. he wrote about that in Darwin's Doubt, yeah. how at that point in time, um, you know, the Darwin had postulated that there would be all of these different forms of these gradual mutations in, into different species, but none of these these uh, different forms were were found in in any of the the excavation sites of the uh, of the past whatever 100, 100 years and so they just kept on saying well either you know they were you know we haven't dug deep enough or we you know they didn't have hard enough bodies uh, to you know become fossilized um, but they just they couldn't explain the fact that so many different life forms, especially in the Cambrian era, just came out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. But when you look at this, you know, the Evolution 2.0 toolkit, there are all these different explanations for where they came from, mm -hmm. where how, you know, just in a matter of generations, uh, like we discussed the, you know, the hagfish, um, it, you know, he didn't know how, you know, nobody knows how many generations it took for this new species to come out and to create this vertebrate. I mean, it could have been 10 generations, 100 generations but it definitely wasn't over the course of you know a billion years of, mm -hmm. of just random mutations when you postulate this uh, not necessarily intelligent but at least artificially intelligent mm -hmm. form of tinkering and experimenting under the under the forces of natural selection which are you know tremendous you know the environmental changes can be devastating just wipe out entire species but when you postulate this this intelligent design that's driving the force to survive all of these changes and to tinker with whatever they you know the the organism has that's available to survive then it, it makes much more sense that you would get much more of a uh, you know a driven and faster sort of evolution over the course of you know a number of generations rather than just accidental you know bumps and combinations well one of the questions that I've had while reading these books, and I just got to say, reading Evolution 2.0, like every couple pages, it would just make me stop because it just would like prompt thoughts and, and speculations and questions as I was reading it. It's, so it's a it's a really good book to read if you just for that reason. It'll it'll make you think mm -hmm. and it'll make you really wonder about what's really going on because this gets into a qu the question like the or the specific area that Douglas Axe was talking about so when we think about these proteins um there's one other fact to consider and that is that um something like well every species has its own unique genes like i don't think there's any species that uh that doesn't have a, a, um, a gene that is unique to it and that means that scientists can't find um like relatives of that gene in any other species 
So it's not like they can look at at uh, like a new gene that is in um, like one species and then look at all the related species and find, oh, well, that gene looks really similar. So we can see how, how that gene must have progressed like slowly and, and uh, gradually into that new gene. It's not like we can, it's not like, um, you know, in music where if you have a bunch of people doing different versions of the same song where you can trace okay, that one sounds like this, and that one sounds like this one that came before, and you can trace it back. Oh, well, the first time someone used that melody was back, you know, right here. Um, you, you can't find correlates going back through the, the tree of life. And I think, um, let me see if I can find, there's a number going through my head, tw 10 to 20%. I think that might be the, um, the number of... Yeah, so comparative genome analysis indicates that every taxonomic group so far studied contains 10 to 20% of genes that lack recognizable homologs in other species. So if you think about how many, how many unique genes th that is. So where do these new genes come from? So I'm trying to think about this. Um, Axe might argue, um, although I, like I mentioned, he doesn't explicitly say all these new genes come from God. That seems to be the direction that he goes in, just based on other things that he says. But like Marshall would say, that's kind of... Um, that's just as much a cop-out as yeah. random mutation, right? right? So how, how can this happen? Um, looking at the, 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 tool, the blades in the toolkit, can any of these create new genes? Well, uh, Marshall doesn't deal with this question specifically, but if we think about it, the answer might be maybe. Because, well, I think it's maybe. Because if we look at what Marshall does say, the way he describes the genome, the way he describes it is it is a language. And cells seem intelligent enough to understand that language. So it's not like the cells are just randomly doing any of these things. The cells know what they're doing when they're transposing and splicing and combining and taking apart and turning on and turning off. They know the language. Like, humans don't know the language. We know parts of it, and we're, we're learning more and more. Like, you know, we've learned a vast amount about the, the language of the genome um, since its discovery. And every, every year, we're discovering new things, um, new, bit, new, new understandings of that language and the, spe and the sp specific, um, um, like, features of that language. But still, you know, we're nowhere near as intelligent as a, as a, as a, a single-celled organism when it comes to understanding the genome. So if we think about the, the genome in terms of language, and if we posit that the cells individually understand that language, then it makes, it, potentially it makes sense. Because the cell understanding that language would say, you know, it's got a purpose in mind, this is a purposeful process, so it's like, okay, I need this function. I know the language of these genes. I know that if I spell this a certain way, right, then I'm going to get the the answer I want. Just like when we write a story or we, we write anything. Um, you know, we know where we want to go with it and we think, okay, well, where, what do I want to say? This is the idea I have. This is what will work. Okay, then I'm going to write that sentence because that will give me what I need. You know, maybe I'm going to say that this person, you know, goes to this location to do something, right? Because that's where they need to be for my story to work. Whatever. The cell understands that language. So the cell itself is writing a new protein because it, it understands the language, it understands what the result will be, and it produces the, the new protein. It doesn't necessarily require an outside intelligence, um, like tinkering within the genetic code. It's the cell itself that is writing the genetic code. 
that is splicing it and editing it and doing everything that we, th that we, that we do when we work with our own languages, but it's doing it on the level of the genome. So that takes God out of the equation, at least at that level. But there's still the question of, well, how, how are cells that smart? You know, how can cells be that smart? Can they be just, are they just artificial intelligence where they're just programmed with, they're programmed to act as if they're smart? Or are they actually smart in and of themselves? Um, well, I, per personally, I think they're smart in and of themselves on some level that we just don't comprehend, that it's the cell itself that is doing these things. Um, and that, um, now, of course, there is, um, there is an element of um, intelligent desi design in the sense of like, it is like creating an artificial intelligence, but that, um, that intelligence is like, it, it, it's, a, it's both, kind of. Like, it's a created intelligence, it's an artificial intelligence, but that it ha that acquires its own intelligence. Well, that's what artificial intelligence is, right? The idea of real artificial intelligence is that it, it, it would create an actual intelligence, like an actual self, um, uh, an actual intelligence that thinks for itself and experiences for itself. Not just a computer program that is, is running through rules, but an actual intelligence. So I guess, um, yeah, they both come down to the same thing. If you're creating an artificially intelligent cell, that cell is actually intelligent if it um, conforms with the definition of what artificial intelligence really is. So all, all intelligence would be artificial in that, in that sense, is that it's, uh, you know, it's created based on this code, this language, but it actually acquires um, it, uh, like up through the complexities of the, the tree of life, it, you know, it, it has culminated, as far as we know, on this planet in humans, mm -hmm. which are the most intelligent species, um, and that can do the most um, with their minds. But even then, when we compare it with cells, it's like we're not as smart as cells in certain ways. We're smarter in some ways. Like cells can't produce philosophy or artwork. Um, they create a highly, highly complex and functional system of life, which is just incomprehensibly complex and and um and and functional like it, it is a computer program that has lasted billions of years on its own that uh that self adapts self creates self changes and that uh that has lasted forever for this entire time like if you can imagine uh, a human creating a, a computer so, like operating system like that it would be Remarkable. It would be the creation of an artificial intelligence, like Perry Marshall says, and that would be a, like the biggest breakthrough in human technological history to create something like that. And we are it. Like we are that kind of thing. Life is that kind of thing. Well, maybe you could say, uh, you know, in just in terms of the cell in in information theory, you know, what the kinds of uh, information that a cell can process, that its choices are so limited that it can only speak that language and it has mm -hmm. to if it wants right. to survive. Exactly. But when you get to like the level of human beings, we have so many more choices because, because of the complexity that we can, that we have the freedom to, we don't even need to know how to speak that language anymore because you know we're our minds are focused in so many other places mm -hmm. that we can you know direct our attention to it and we have you know kind of late in the game you probably yeah. could say <laughs> you know after you know just pretending you know uh, all different sorts of illusions for so very long um, but now we you know like it, that's what Perry Marshall's thesis is I I believe and, and what I think that 
a lot of people who would approach you know the the evolution of life and the study of life what they would want it to be is to study it as it is in terms of the information um sort of information theory and like the whole new vista of of life of you know of being and of science that that has to offer in terms of life creation the the roles the rules that we all living beings have to follow um you know the the laws that govern you know becoming an informed and you know sovereign kind of being on this crazy planet um and not just you know saying you know god did it or it was all random you know just kind of you know all these different forms of cop-outs but really trying to understand what does it take you know what what created us this conscious you know this conscious being what is the what the heck is going on there cuz when you read the all of this stuff about evolution um and we've discussed uh, i don't think we've discussed this on the show but we've been reading antonio damasio's the strange order of things and you kind of get this um this view from the top down into like the very bowels of of life and what it takes to survive and you see that at the very core of it it is this this unbelievable struggle to to, to run death yeah. on a constant basis and there's no room there's no room for um for illusion or for wishful thinking or for um you know for all of the the kind of craziness that we see on a day-to-day -day basis all of the cop-outs that we you know whether it's political or religious or economic you know there's no room really for anything except striving right. and tinkering and engineering but there's also no room for all of the great things that we associate with being humans like like i mentioned like art and philosophy and and relationships and any kind of human endeavor that we find meaningful, there's no room for that in life. So the way that I've been seeing it is, and th these books have kind of contributed to this kind of overall worldview that I've been building over, you know, just over all the years of, of reading and thinking about these sorts of things, is that um, it, like, uh, like Marshall describes in a, a computer system or any kind of information system, it's like one level on top of the other, right? It's like a matryoshka doll, where um, there are levels of encoding. Like one one thing is is encoded in in a language that is then encoded in another mm -hmm. computer language in another, and so it's like one thing within the next, one thing built on the next. And so when we look at these all these creatures from the single from the single celled organisms all the way up to to the highest mammals, like aside from us, we we see that they're fulfilling a a, a function. They're fulfilling a purpose each individually and collectively. And like uh, overall, the the biggest collective would be just life in general, what Bryant Schiller called the life system. And then, um, and like you said from Damasio, the the purpose of all that seemed to be just survival. It's like let's just survive, right? Well, let's cr that's all we need to do, and that's the, the only thing we're we're out to do is just survive. And once that survival um, is created, that then opens up the possibilities for higher forms of life to the point where we we're now on this planet we're humans and but we seem to have another purpose like or other purposes on top of that mm -hmm. it's like we are built out of creatures whose purpose it is to survive we too have had to survive and we've at least done it so far but we have purposes over and above those like um animal level purposes 
So that that too brings into the into the equation the the language of purpose and the the, the reality of purpose, where animals have a have a, each have their own purpose. Life as a system has its own purpose, but we have our own purpose too. This gets back to what you said about the the, the limitation of intelligent organisms like cells to to only speak that language because that's the only thing they have time to do and the only thing they can do they're limited to only understanding that language but humans have more freedom we have the freedom to create our own languages just for one and then to do all kinds of remarkable things for that languages we've built a language on top of creatures that have their own language it's like this weird nested thing um it's like nested levels of information where we have built ourselves and our consciousness on top of and um, and out of the the collective intelligence of all these what like I think I think a human body has like a trillion cells in it or something like that and the uh, I just watched the a video that um, Marshall recommends in his book um, can't remember the researcher's name but she did this TED talk like how how bacteria talk and I can't remember the exact numbers but something like well, depending on how you count, like something like 95% of our cells are bacteria. Mm-hmm. It's like we're, they're not even us, really. We're like this symbiotic organism, right? Mm-hmm. And so most of our cells are bacteria. But we're made of uh, like, tri- like billions of smaller organisms. And they all work together in order to create this kind of super organism, which we think of as ourself which then has the, all the abilities that we associate with humanity and which we don't even know the extent of. We don't even know the extent of what human capabilities are. Um, what we see in everyday life is the average. Now, I, th- I think that not only do we see the average, we see the lowest of the lows as well because um, entropy is a lot easier than, uh, than creation. Like It's easier to let yourself go than to discipline yourself to the point where you become... Uh, where you fully embody your own potential. So I think it's very rare that we see someone who has totally, fully embodied hu- the human potential that is within them, we, but we see failure all the time. But what is the nature of that potential? That, like, what can we achieve if we do what we're supposed to do? That could be, it could be, like, remarkable. We have no idea the, the limits of what, that could, of what we could achieve in that direction. So, but we can only think about that sort of thing. We can only, um, uh, well, we can only think about that uh, that ideal, that potential, if we think in terms of purpose. Mm-hmm. Like we need that as part of our equation if we're to even comprehend the idea that we can strive for something and achieve something greater. We need to think in terms of what is what is the purpose of life? What is the purpose of human life? But Darwinism totally excludes that. So they won't even let you ask the question. It isn't even a question for them. What can be the purpose of life? How great can, can humanity become if we put our minds to it? Because that isn't part of the, of the equation. There is no purpose. There is no meaning. All there is is randomness. So all you see, like, it's just accident. We can't create anything. We can't become anything because there's nothing to become because there is no purpose in the universe. And that is the the official culture that that's the information that has been 
pumped into so many people's brains for the past 100, 200 years that that is the reason why I feel like you, do, you don't even want to discuss the possibility of intelligent design or even hint at the idea of God or something higher mm -hmm. because that meaningless that just that absolute meaninglessness, that nihilism that is, you know, we see just spreading like a virus across the world today is so powerful. But it's the antithesis of what, you know, the the biological sciences are teaching us. And especially when you, they incorporate ideas like information theory, because in information theory, you know, all of the organization that goes into the, the living system is itself information. That's, that information is not physical. It's not, it has no dimension. It's the opposite of entropy. You know, entropy, um, I was just reading a textbook on, you know, the living systems or, you know, living cells and information theory. And the uh, author discusses the fact that um, the information in the biological world is organized from, you know, all of these, like you were discussing, from the cell to the tissue to the organ, to the organism, um, all the way up, uh, you know, to us, you know, what we're doing here, talking today. And all of that is the result of the, all of these toolkits that we're we talking about, um, all this attempt to organize and to fight against entropy, to fight against, you know, the natural selection and just the decay of the universe. And that constant striving is what's created us in that, you know, that if we look at that and try and draw lessons from it, we could say that gaining information and disciplining oneself in that way is the purpose that mm -hmm. we are on earth to perform. It's not, you know, nihilism and all of this, you know, wishful thinking, all of this other kind of stuff is the antithesis. That's the, the entropy coming in and, um, and opening you know, the door to our, you know, natural selection coming in, you know, wiping us out. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it's, it's just such a, it's just such a fascinating topic to think that the biological sciences, um, you know, if when they're seen in like a proper scientific light, really do shine light on a really a much deeper religious a meaning than, mm -hmm. you know, than we're allowed to through the kind of the gatekeepers of official culture, you know, the mm -hmm. Dawkins and, you know, the Harris's and yeah. all of these other folk who, uh, who, you know, it's that mind virus, that meme, I guess you could say, of nihilism in culture has blinded so many people to, you know, what... Um, you know, years ago would have been considered like some sort of esoteric science. You know, now it's mainstream science, mm -hmm. but it's still, you know, esoteric. It's still yeah. like hidden in, yeah. in broad yeah. daylight. <laughs> well, you mentioned Sam Harris. Um, there was an interesting part in this book, uh, in Perry Marshall's book, where he first gives... Um, he, he gives what he calls the current master paradigm of the physical sciences. So this would be physics and chemistry. And he's got three points here. One, matter, energy, space, and time are organized according to discoverable laws of physics. Two, the laws of physics are unchanging and universal. Three, all past and future discoveries reveal law-like behavior exhibiting mathematical elegance and beauty. Now, like he says, that's a pretty good paradigm for the physical sciences. Now, I don't think it's perfect. I think some of those are open to question. Like, um, I'd agree with the first one, matter, space, energy, and time are organized according to discoverable laws. Like, we can, that's what science has shown, and that's the reason science, 
science is possible is that there is order in the universe and we can discover it and it makes sense because it's uh, it's ordered, it's repeatable, it seems to happen um, in a way that is um, understandable rationally. Now, two, um, the, the laws of physics are unchanging and universal. Now, um, uh, Rupert Sheldrake would argue, well, that th that's unknown. We don't know that the laws don't change. The laws themselves may evolve. Um, I'd agree that they seem to be definitely universal. Like, gravity seems to operate the same way um, here as it does anywhere else in the cosmos. You know, it seems to have a, um, a constant, um, constant acceleration, right? When we, when we measure gravity in terms of um, acceleration, even though we don't know what gravity is. But it may be that they changed, but, you know, let's give it to them. Because as far as we know, even if it, even if it changes, like, stochastically, like, if it, if it hovers in, around a certain, like, range of values, it's still good enough for horseshoes, right? It's not like gravity changes um, from one minute to the next where it's all, all of a sudden where it's like we're floating on the, or like we're walking on the moon or something. It seems to be um, ordered and um, at least unchanging to a degree that we can, um, we can measure it and understand it and operate within it. Um, with some degree of um, of stability and uh, and predictability, but within that that well, first of all, coming back to what you said, that like Marshall says, that doesn't account for for life. It doesn't account for the way information works. Information doesn't fit into that. It's like a, a new dimension on top of 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 the physical um, the way the physical world works, the laws of the physical universe. Something over and above that that makes use of the physical laws and chemistry, but can't be reduced to them. Because there, is an because there is an element of choice, of free will. Like he says, it's a code, and the, the thing that makes codes, codes possible is the freedom to choose that zero means on and, or, or off, and one means off or on. Mm -hmm. You get to choose. Whoever is writing the code gets to choose what that means. Just like when we create words in, in languages, they are largely arbitrary, but they become meaningful through the, the common acceptance um, and agreement that a, per, a people speaking that language um, comes to. But, the, but when it comes down to it, they're still arbitrary. That's why any language can work. We can make up a word and say it's going to mean this thing, and then everyone accepts it and it works. But it doesn't have to be that word. It doesn't have to be that combination of sounds. But when we are doing science itself, there are certain presuppositions of science. This is something that Sam Harris gets, but he doesn't go far enough. Like, I listened to a debate that he had with a theologian, and just like he did in the debates with Jordan Peterson, he would come up with something like, oh, well, that's just, a, that's just something we have to assume, and that's as far as he'll go with it. Like, and, but he's right in a sense, in that whenever we're doing any kind of cognitive thing, cognitive like um, um, project, there are going to be certain axiomatic presuppositions that we can't get behind and that we can't necessarily justify to ourselves. We just have to accept them as true, and as long as we can accept them as true, then we can do whatever we're doing, right? And, and so in this book, he's got from another source a list of the presuppositions of science, so I'll just read some of them. One, the existence of a theory-independent theory external world. So you can't do science without accepting that there is an external reality that you're actually studying mm -hmm. and that you can say something true about. So that leads to some of the next ones. Two, the orderly nature of the external world. The external world needs to have order, otherwise we couldn't be able to say anything rational about it. Otherwise, everything we say would be irrational because the, the, the world is irrational and is just a chaos. 
we couldn't say anything definite about it. So it needs to have some order to it. Three, the knowability of the external world. So if the external world has order and we can't know it, then we can't say anything about it. But because we can say something about it and we do say something about it that seems to be true and that is true, then that needs to be part of it. We need to be able to know it. Four, that is pre all of that is premised on the existence of truth. We can't say anything true about the universe if there's no such thing as truth, right? Science can't be science unless truth is a reality. Five, the laws of logic. Well, we can't say that one theory is better than another or that one theory doesn't make sense if logic doesn't exist in and of itself to be able to determine why one statement is more true than another or why one is true and another is false. The, the laws, we, we can't escape the laws of logic. They're not something we create, but they're something that determine the way in which we think and the way in which we come to conclusions about the, uh, about the world and the way in which we make statements that are true or false about the world. We can't do science if logic doesn't exist in some sense that is greater than, um, than the creation of human minds. We don't create logic. There are several others, but the um, one being the existence of numbers, which we talked about several weeks ago. But the point being that if we are going to understand the cosmos, if we're going to understand our place within it, there are these presuppositions. And our worldview, the way in which we think about the entire world, the entire universe, has to be able to account for these, um, these presuppositions. So if we have a worldview that can't account for the existence of truth, in fact, a worldview that denies the existence of truth, that theory, is, it should be off the table. It should be, okay, we know that this worldview, this theory is wrong, because it can't account for the very thing we need to create this worldview in the first place. It can't, it can't allow us to be science. So if I'm a scientist who's doing science and I've got a worldview that can't account for the, the presuppositions of doing science, I have no business calling myself a, science, a scientist because my worldview doesn't allow for the existence of scientists. Right? Yeah. And that's what Darwinism is. That's what, neo, mm -hmm. that's what materialism is. It can't account for the existence of scientists, of Darwinists. Right? Mm -hmm. Darwinists can't exist in the worldview created by Darwinists. Mm -hmm. Which must mean it's a bad theory. It should be thrown out. We should never speak of it again. <laughs> like, no, it should be a footnote you know, in the history of thought. You know, it should be an unfortunate um, footnote in the history of thought, just like there are so many of them, but still a footnote. Mm -hmm. It is something we got drastically wrong. Mm -hmm. Like wrong to the extent that who knows like what kind of damage we're doing to ourselves by believing these things. What kind of possibilities we are um, like cutting off from ourselves because we accept things that are just totally absurd and wrong. Um, and arguably, like I said, that their history is just, the, is just a long string of being wrong about things. And there were, mm -hmm. so we were wrong about all kinds of things when, before the Enlightenment and, uh, you know, before we discovered what, how to do science, but we got a lot of things right too. So the, the goal going forward should be to find all of the best things about both of those worlds without a worldview that denies the, the existence of scientists, mm -hmm. essentially. Yeah. That will require, and doing that will require a, a new kind of religiosity, a new kind of spirituality, a new view of the world where those things have a place. Not in the form that they had 200, 300 years ago, 4,000 years ago, because we can't, we can't square the belief systems of 
people back then with the scientific worldview right now. Like Sam Harris gets that much right. Like there, there are certain incompatibilities going on there. But there are uh, overlaps. Like there are things that we can take from ancient worldviews and even from current worldviews that are just um, rejected and denied by um, materialist Darwinists. Like they can work together. And that should be the, the direction that um, that you know, all the thinkers in the world are, should should be going if we want to achieve, um, if we want to um, progress in our achievement and progress in the right direction. Because that, again, if there's purpose in the universe, that means that we can go wrong. Mm -hmm. And if we want to, go, if we if we can go wrong, we want to learn how to not go wrong. Right? We don't want to screw up so badly that we destroy ourselves. We and in fact, we and we don't want to just survive. Because we've done that for thousands of years, and it can get boring, <laughs> and, and still things can go wrong, and things can get, and and things can be just as miserable. We want to find a better way to live, mm -hmm. and the way to do that would be to just to ex first of all accept that there is purpose in the universe, and then define that purpose, and to then to arrange our actions, arrange all the pursuits of our lives in the context of that purpose. And if we can do that, like I said, we don't know. Where we could go, but it, but it will it will be, um, you know, by definition, it will be interesting and good. <laughs> I thought it was very inspiring to have that idea or that thought of at the very essence, at the very like, you know, minute, like the the smallest unit of life, the cell, there is purpose, mm -hmm. and like having a worldview structured on that is like. Yeah. It's, in, it's inspirational in the Jordan Peterson way. Mm -hmm. There's purpose like all the way down, and we are mm -hmm. built out of purpose. Okay, yeah. Well, um, we just heard from a, a, a strange voice there. Um, we've That's actually our DJ. Uh, is that the right word? VJ. Our VJ um, Adam there, So, just so everyone knows who was just talking. And on that note, I think we'll end it there. We are purpose-filled creatures built out of purpose and other little tiny purpose-filled creatures. We are built on the truth-seeking of thousands of bacterium and, yeah. <laughs> and organisms. Of billions, billions of super smart bacteria that, uh, that can teach us. They can actually teach us a lot about life if we look at them and if we, if we listen to the call of the bacterium. And if they don't kill us first. Right, exactly. With that? <laughs> With that. <laughs> Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to The Truth Perspective. We only scratched the surface of the mysteries of life, but uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And uh, we'll be back next week talking about something else. And I'm sure in some, sometime in the future we will return to the topics that we discussed today. So thanks again and take care. Have a great week, everybody.